0: Our topic is, uh, we're looking at the elements of worship. We've come to Christian baptism, and we're going to spend uh, two sermons on Christian baptism. And uh, I'm going to take everything I know about Christian baptism and be very brief. So this is, be, uh, if you already are an expert on pedobaptism, this will be a great review for you. Uh, if you don't know anything about it, if you don't know why we baptize infants, this is, you're going to learn why it is biblical It's not from Roman Catholicism. It's not some sacramentalist thing. It's totally biblical. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse uh, 11. And you'll note here the comparison of circumcision to baptism. In him, you were also circumcised at the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in the trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your heart, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. A Very excellent passage (coughs) showing that the primary uh, meaning of baptism and circumcision are the same, and we'll see why that's important in a moment. Well, another important part of public worship is baptism, which under under normal circumstances is conducted in public worship, and of course, baptism is something that you do as the need arises. If you have a big, giant church, you might be doing it every week. If you have a tiny little church, you might be doing it once or twice a year. (coughs) Or if you're doing a lot of evangelism, you'll be doing it every month. But it's as the need arises. Now, baptism was instituted by Jesus during the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. It is the New Testament initiatory rite into the visible church or the household of faith. It is done by... Pouring or sprinkling, and I'll prove that in a moment, water upon the person being baptized in the name of the triune God, Matthew 28, 19, Acts 8, 36, and 38, and 39. Now, let me talk about, just briefly, <clears throat> why do we do sprinkling or pouring and Baptists do immersion? Which one is taught in the Bible? Baptists insist that the only proper mode of baptism is through immersion. You take somebody, and as you're saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you dunk them under the water, and you bring them back up. And this is largely based on the Greek word for baptized, for baptized, baptizo, <clears throat> which they claim always means to dip or immerse. And if you watch good old John MacArthur, who's, who's my favorite evangelical preacher, he's He's nothing compared to good Reform preachers, but he's good for an evangelical preacher. Um, This is what he'll say Oh, it always means a Mercer dip. Well, that's not actually true. This assertion has been thoroughly refuted by James W. Dale, uh, Johanny Baptism, an inquiry into the meaning of the word as determined in the usage of the Holy Scriptures, 1898. It's like, I think it's five or six volumes. I borrowed it. I didn't go out and buy it. It's extremely expensive, but I borrowed it uh, years ago when I wrote a book on the sacraments. He gives many examples of the word being used to pour it. Water poured into wine. baptizes the wine. In the original Greek. This is ancient literature. The water coming out of a fountain. Water at a spring or fountain where immersion would be impossible. The people went to a small fountain and they baptized themselves with the water. Well, they didn't immerse themselves in the water. They couldn't. But they could pour it on themselves and sprinkle it upon themselves. And, of course, sprinkling. In the apocryphal book, Ecclesiasticus 3425, it is used for the sprinkling purification rite of Numbers 19. And that's a sprinkling, not a dipping, not a pouring. It's a sprinkling ceremony. Josephus, the first century jewish historian used baptizantes, same verb, to describe the pharisaical ritual of pouring or sprinkling the hands with water before meals. They developed a ritual, and before you ate your meal, a guy would take a pitcher of water, and you'd hold out your hands, and he would go from your wrist to your fingertips and cover your hands with water. It was a ritual baptism of the hands by pouring. And we find that in, of course... um, Luke 38 which is the aorist passive indicative of baptizo i the author of Hebrews used the word to describe the ritual cleansings by sprinkling in the Mosaic Law Hebrews 9 1 to 16 verses 19 to 21 apply uh, explicitly apply to sprinkling rituals and the word baptizo is used when God baptized the church he poured out the Holy Spirit onto it Acts 2 1 to 4 18 to 33 the verbs are poured out uh, excuse me. The words are pour out and poured out, and that's baptizing by pouring and pouring out, and that's how God did baptism. In Acts 1:8, the Spirit comes down upon the apostles, the disciples. In Acts 8:16, the words "fallen upon" are used for that word "fallen upon." In Acts 10:45, the verb "poured out" is used. When Peter describes God's baptism of the Gentiles, he says, the Spirit fell upon them. Acts 11.15 11, uh, 11, Paul describes Spirit baptism saying he poured out the Holy Spirit on us abundantly. Titus 3.5-6 So the apostles clearly associated Spirit baptism with water baptism. Acts eleven eight sixteen. 16 uh, See Matthew 3.13 uh, one eight and John one twenty six. And that's uh, John saying that he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit or with fire. For the Jews, Christ's coming is either salvation and blessing or judgment and damnation. That's your choice, Jews. How, this is how you react to the Messiah. <clears throat> the apostles clearly associated spirit baptism with water baptism. Baptism by foreign screen comes directly out of the Old Testament Scriptures. Proverbs one twenty-three, Joel 2.28, Isaiah 32.15, 52.15, Ezekiel 36.25-26. to The Baptist position is only tenable if one completely ignores the usage of this word in the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the New Testament, the Apocrypha, the Intertestamental Sources, and Josephus. Therefore, we should not be surprised that the Reformed churches, following the testimony of Scripture, have always baptized by pouring or sprinkling. Now, can you find rituals? Of immersion in modern Judaism, yes, you can among certain sects, but in the Bible, it was by pouring or sprinkling, and that's how they cleanse people. How when you when there was a cleansing ritual, and baptism represents the cleansing of Christ's blood, that's one of the things it represents. When there was a cleansing ritual, they'd take a branch with hyssop on it, which is kind of like our moss; it's mossy looking, and uh, they would dip it in. blood and water, or, or water in the ashes of a heifer, and they would sprinkle it upon the house that had leprosy or whatever, and that's how they would cleanse things, by sprinkling. There are also serious uh, practical problems. When 3,000 souls, Acts 2.41, and we're not counting, that's just the men, now we're not counting the women and children... Uh, were they immersed in the town fountain or cistern, which is the local drinking water? In such a scenario, is highly unlikely. Water was a scarce commodity in the Middle East. How do they immerse 3,000 people, 5,000 people? How do they do that? Do they go get a giant bathtub and bring it in the town square? They certainly wouldn't do it in the town fountain where people got their drinking water. It's just, um, it's a Baptist tradition, it's very popular. It's been justified by, by lexicons written by Baptists who would completely ignore the overwhelming evidence for sprinkling and pouring. If you've been immersed, no big deal. We'll accept that. But pouring and sprinkling is fine. <clears throat> now, there are a number of things that we want to note about baptism. Oh, it is done by pouring or sprinkling in the triune name of God. There are a number of things about baptism that are taught in Scripture. First, <coughs> baptism precedes discipleship. For the infants of believers, baptism begins a lifelong process of well, begins a long process of catechization by their covenant parents or parent, and training in the true religion. With the goal of the child being a uh, having a credible profession of faith. Okay, baptism places them in the visible covenant the visible church, they're in the covenant and now they are to be trained so that they become obedient to the covenant. And what does becoming obedient to the covenant require? Faith in Christ and obedience to the moral law as a means of sanctification. They become a... uh, You want them to become become members of the church, but then you want them to become communicant members. That's when they make a credible profession. The children of believers have a great privilege and responsibility because of their membership in the visible church. They are part of the covenant people and are responsible to keep the covenant. If they never exercise true faith, they were only external members of the covenant and will be judged for the refusal to act upon their baptism. There are children. There are many children throughout history that never expressed faith in Christ. Never. Who've been baptized and they've been taught the truth. They've sat under good preaching. They've had good parents that taught them good. I know people, I know kids that never expressed faith, that had super strict, great parents, family worship twice a day, Bible reading, psalm singing, you name it. And the kids turned out to be total heathen swine. They will receive a greater judgment on the day of judgment for they rejected their baptism. And they didn't make good on their their vow. Implicit. For all who are not not raised to Christian homes, baptism follows upon a credible profession of faith and begins a lifelong process of Christian discipleship with covenant obligations. <coughs> the Ethiopian. You know, Philip witnesses to him. He's in a chariot. He believes in Christ. What forbids me from being baptized or what forbids him from being baptized and then he's baptized by Philip an ordained preacher of the gospel and evangelist second the command to baptize is given by Christ to ordain ministers of the gospel (coughs) the 11 apostles Matthew 28 16 Mark 16 uh, 14 to 15 Acts 1 1 to 2 and 8 and Acts 9 15 those who preach must be sent Romans 10 14 to 15 Acts 13 1 to 4 Every example of gospel preaching in the New Testament was conducted by ordained officers, Acts 2:14 to 40, 6 eight to seven uh, and, and 53, uh, eight to seven, uh, 85, 8, 15, 22, 32, 40 following, 13, 2 to 4, 14, 14, etc. Baptism, which begins church membership is related to the church's teaching. Uh, she teaches and ruling elders' responsibility of possessing the keys of the kingdom. That's not some mystical thing where they have mystical powers. It simply means that they have the ability to exclude somebody from membership that they don't think has a credible profession. They have the ability, the authority given to them by Christ, its delegated authority, to excommunicate those who are living in scandalous sin, and they refuse to repent, or habitual sin, and they're confronted, and they say, oh, I'm going to keep sinning, I don't care. And I've met people like that. People who repent uh, need to be forgiven and not dealt with by excommunication, but people who don't repent have to be excommunicated. That's the keys of the kingdom. <coughs> they are determined a credible profession of faith of the parents in the case of covenant infants or in new converts to the faith. A credible profession is not an attempt to determine who is regenerate, that's a mistake, which is impossible. And easily given to abuse, but whose confession of faith accords with Scripture, and whose life is consistent with that confession and repentance? See uh, Matthew three eight and Luke three eight. They come to John the Baptist. Bring forth fruits. Meet. You knew they were living wicked lives, and they were stealing and doing all this stuff. He said, "I'm not going to baptize you guys. Bring forth." Now that's not Christian baptism. That's Old Testament baptism, but the same principle applies. A credible profession. If somebody's fornicating and living an open sin, and they're not repenting, they don't get baptized. It's that simple. Third, the baptismal formula in or into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Acts 8.36.19.5, Matthew 28.19, teaches that baptism brings us into a covenant relationship with God. Baptism is, and we read this in Colossians, uh, well, we'll see it in Romans, it's a sign, a visible sign. Water doesn't really cleanse you, but it represents the blood of Christ cleansing you. It is a sign and a seal of our union with Christ. And all the saving benefits of that flow from that union. And that's the passage we read, Colossians 2, 11 to 14. Number one, regeneration. Regeneration. Ezekiel 36-35 Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. John 3-5 Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Titus 3-5 He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean you're saved by the water of baptism? No. That's a, a Jewish way of putting the sign for the thing it signifies. <clears throat> the Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration. Regeneration is the initial work of the Holy Spirit upon the soul. It takes place within man that quickens dead hearts, John three, five to six, Ephesians two one to five, Colossians two, eleven to thirteen, etc., and consequently illuminates the mind, Acts 16, 14 1 Corinthians 2.14-15, 1 John 2.20, changes the heart in a Godward direction and draws the soul to Christ. Many are called, but few are chosen. There's the outward call and there's the inward call of the Holy Spirit. You've got to have both. The outward call is not enough because we're dead. If you have the inward call of the Holy Spirit, you will believe. It begins the Christian life and results immediately in saving faith and Repentance. Full consideration of paedo-communion is beyond the purview of this, uh, what we're talking about here, because uh, I have a paper, there's a, a small book on it on reformedonline.com, but I'll just give you a brief overview of why it's wrong. Um, some of the conclusions are of my more in-depth study are as follows. First, regarding this chief part, uh, the chief proof text of paedo is which is the original Passover, note the following. Number one. The original Passover took place in the home of the Hebrews. The localized nature of the original Passover, however, was was temporary and extraordinary. The permanent requirements for the Passover are found in God's law and are revealed in subsequent Old Testament historical examples. Number two, while the original participants of the first Passover within the house are not specified, it's distributed by the Father, the immediate context restricts the meal to circumcised Jews, their circumcised servants and strangers, foreigners who are circumcised, who submit to circumcision, that is they have converted to the true religion, and they want to keep the Passover, Exodus twelve, forty two to forty nine. Even the original Passover, which was unique in a number of ways, does not offer support to infant and toddler communion. Man, I must have read this last week because this is. Kind of, oh, this is connected to. Uh, that's connected to the end of last week's sermon. So ignore all that. And then third, the baptismal formula in or into Acts eight thirty six brings us into a covenant relationship. Number one, regeneration. Number two, the remission of sins. Matthew, uh, Mark 1.4 and Acts two thirty eight. Three. The Baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, Matthew three eleven, Mark one eight, Luke three, 3 sixteen, John one twenty six and thirty three, Acts one five and two two and seventeen. Eleven Acts eleven fifteen to sixteen. So remission of sins, baptism of the Holy Spirit, number four, initial sanctification for purification, <coughs> and progressive sanctification. Ezekiel 36, 25, John 3, 6, Romans 6, 4 to 18, 1 John 2, 29, 1 John 3, 9, Acts, um, excuse me, Matthew 7, 18. Five, physical bodily resurrection and glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23 26 and 42 to 55. So from the biblical definition of what baptism represents, what it signifies, and what it seals, everyone who teaches baptismal regeneration should logically also teach that everyone baptized with water is guaranteed everlasting salvation. And this statement is obviously false. And this is the problem with baptismal regeneration, and this is the reason sacramentalists uh, pervert, they all shift to an Arminian position, because the vast majority of people who have been baptized, for example, in the United States, Roman Catholics, liberal Lutherans, liberal Episcopalians, uh, even a lot of Presbyterians, never become Christians. So if they were really regenerated if they really were baptized with the Holy Spirit, if they really had their sins washed away by Christ's blood, which is what the Federal Vision people teach, if they, had all, if they possessed all of these things automatically through baptism, then everyone would be saved who was baptized. And the vast majority of people who are baptized are not saved. So sacramentalism is obviously false. And it causes people to redefine the doctrine of salvation in an unbiblical manner. The federal visionists, for example, teach that there are two different kinds of election, one that works, one that doesn't work. There's two different kinds of the new birth, one that works, one that doesn't actually work. They ignore the doctrine of perseverance and say that Christians can fall away, which is Arminianism. It's a complete perversion. If you want to hang on to sacramentalism, you're going to have to completely destroy and distort the gospel of sovereign grace, which is the capstone of the Reformation. And even Luther believed in that. Melanchthon and people later on shifted to Arminian positions or semi-Pelagian positions primarily to justify their sacramentalism. In Colossians 2.11-12, we see that baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision and has a lot in common with it as far as its theological meaning. And I'm going to read it again. In him you are also circumcised of the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him at baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. In a passage you want to read that's similar is uh, Romans chapter six, where Paul talks about hey can, now that if we're saved solely by Christ. And our works don't contribute. Can't we go out and sin all we want? And then he talks about union with Christ. Union with Christ makes a radical change in our nature. Because by virtue of that union, we have the Holy Spirit. By virtue of that union, we love Christ. By virtue of that union, we can't continue in sin anymore. The old man is put away. Behold, we are the new man in Christ. And that's a consistent teaching throughout the New Testament. Although baptism signifies and seals the same things as circumcision, especially our union with Christ, there are some important differences. When a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit and saved, he, is, he or she is united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. All true believers continue in a living, organic relationship with the Savior. John fifteen five. This mystical union, that's what theologians call it because it's hard to understand, enables us to appropriate on our part what is given unto us by Christ and to enter ever increasingly into conscious enjoyment of the blessed union with Christ, which is the source of all our spiritual riches. Because of this union, Jesus is the source of our life, our sanctification and salvation in the broadest sense of the term. The union is organic you can look these up later. John 15, 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 19, Ephesians 1, and 23, and 4, 15 and 16, 5, 29 and 30. It is vital. Galatians 4, 19 to 20, Romans 8, 10, 2 Corinthians 13, 15. It is personal. Yet there is a true yet mystical bond with Christ. John 14, 20, 15, 1 to 7, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Galatians 2, 20, and Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. And it is mediated by the special work of the Holy Spirit. As part of his reward for his redemptive obedience, the divine human mediator receives and pours out the Holy Spirit on his church, his people. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ now dwells in believers, unites them to himself, and he knits them together in a holy family. The more you understand about regeneration, the more you understand about union with Christ and what it entails for the person who is united to Christ, mystically, the more you have to reject sacramentalism. John talks about those who left the church in 1 John. They went out from us, they were not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. You can't, you know, to paraphrase, you know the truth because you do have the Holy Spirit, you've been united to Christ, you can't fall away. And also, uh, I think it's First Corinthians chapter 2, where he talks about apart from a work of God, you're spiritually blind. You cannot know anything spiritual truly. But those who have the Holy Spirit know the truth, Believe the truth, obey the truth, they persevere in the truth. There are some important differences, however, with circumcision. Circumcision was a bloody rite that was only applied to covenant males. Females were part of the covenant, but had no outward sign. It pointed to the Messiah to come who was to be a descendant of the seed of Abraham, Genesis seventeen, seven and following, Galatians three, sixteen, and of course David, second Samuel seven twelve and following. Baptism is a new covenant ordinance that is bloodless, for it looks back at a completed redemption. It is to be applied to both males and females, and the seed symbolism has been fulfilled. Christ had to come from Abraham's seed. That, that's, we don't need a line leading to Christ anymore. But the significance of of circumcision as a sign of regeneration and and union with Christ and all those wonderful benefits, that continues. Colossians makes that crystal clear, and we find it in other passages of Scripture. The Colossians passage is important not only because it connects the meaning of the New Testament baptism to Old Testament circumcision, but also notes that it is through faith, not simply water, that what Jesus accomplished is applied. You know, go back later today and read the Colossians' Passions. Yes, you're united to Christ, but that always will be accompanied by true saving faith. That is why you can't believe in baptismal regeneration, the Federal Vision heresy, or Roman Catholicism, or even Lutheranism. The Lutheranism is bizarre because they teach, they they either teach that the infant has faith in him somehow, or they teach that he's uh, regenerated due to the faith of his parents and saved by the faith of his parents. Some other important things to consider regarding baptism are as follows. Number one, and we've already touched on this, but we'll be more explicit. <clears throat> the ritual of water baptism does not automatically convey grace or regeneration in everyone baptized. It is always an outward sign, but it is only a seal to the elect. And by seal, I mean guarantee of salvation, and those things that we talked about seal last week. To the elect are those who have or will have true saving faith. It's always a sign, but it's only a seal to the elect. And here's what Calvin says, which is wonderful. The reason that Presbyterians and the Reformed churches in Germany and the Dutch and the English Puritans did not believe in baptismal regeneration is because it was emphatically rejected by all the early reformers. Here's what Calvin says. Hence that distinction is due to be duly understood, often noted by the same Augustine, who by the way is the most quoted person within the Institutes, between a sacrament and the matter of the sacrament, or we could say the reality of the sacrament, for this distinction signifies not only that the figure and the truth are contained in the sacrament, but that they are not so linked that they cannot be separated and that even in the union itself the matter must always be distinguished from the sign that we may not transfer to the one what belongs to the other this is against baptismal regeneration <clears throat> he speaks of this separation when he writes and this he's quoting augustine from john's gospel and this is his comment uh, augustine's commentary on john's gospel 26 11 12 and 15 it is the elect alone It is in the elect alone that the sacraments affect what they represent. Again, end of quote. Again, when he writes thus of the Jews, and this is um, Augustine on the Psalms, Psalm 77, 2. Although the sacraments were common to all, grace was not common to all. Grace, uh, Grace was not common, which is the power of the sacraments. So also the laver of regeneration, Titus 3, 5, is now common to all, But grace itself, and by which the members of Christ are regenerated with their head, is not common to all. This is Calvin quoting Augustine approvingly. And when you read this, it's amazing what the Roman Catholic Church became. Now, Augustine had a lot of bad things. He said he had a lot of problems, but his his soteriology was generally quite excellent. Thus, the surest argument to rebuke the self-deception of those who attribute everything to the power of the water can be sought in the meaning of baptism itself which draws us away, not only from the visible element which meets our eyes, but from all other means, that it may fasten our minds on Christ alone. End of quote. That's from the Institutes of Christian Religion. The federal visionists have very lengthy arguments trying to say that, well, the original reformers, they all believed in baptismal regeneration, but it was perverted later on in the 19th century because of the influence of the Enlightenment. And Doug Wilson goes into this, and so does uh, Lusk and all these guys. It's a lie. It's just a complete distortion of church history to support heresy. <clears throat> it is totally dependent on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to give the outward sign biblical meaning and apply what the sign signifies to our hearts. Romanists and all sacramentalists teach that it is the, an automatic channel of grace and that everyone baptized is regenerated and saved. Now, the federal visionists have confused a lot of people and they've got away with murder because they're teaching baptismal re- regeneration in a weird way that is completely unlike Roman Catholicism. So they can say, well, I'm not in favor of ex opere operata. I'm not in favor of it working automatically like magic. Uh, but it's, they have a sociological view of regeneration that they've d- developed from James Jordan and Peter Lighthart. It's been adopted by people like Steve Schlissel and... Uh, Doug Wilson. The federal visionists teach that by virtue of the fact that baptism brings us into the church, the body of Christ, those baptized must be regarded as, and I'm using their language, saved, forgiven of their sins, and in possession of the Holy Spirit. And this could be called a sociological or corporate concept of baptismal regeneration. That's why it's confused people. Because they say, well, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe in that at all. I mean, like the Roman Catholics, but they do believe in it. It's just a sociological, confusing way. And let me quote James Jordan. Excuse me, Peter Lighthart, James Jordan's chief disciple. (coughs) Here's the federal visionist advocate, Peter Lighthart. He says this. If baptism initiates into the church, the question about baptismal efficacy is not the power in the water. Okay, that's the Roman Catholic view. The water automatically regenerates. (coughs) But what the church is what is this community into which the baptism inducts me? If, as I have argued above, the church is the saved community, and the people in fellowship with the Father, through the Son and the Spirit, then baptism, as the entry right into that community, must give the baptized member a share in this community and this fellowship. Okay, let me just stop for one moment. The federal visionists, and this amazes me, because these are not stupid men, um, the Old Testament always made a distinction between the covenant people or national election or corporate election and the remnant, individual election, true election, saving election. They always made a distinction. The Bible uses these things in two different ways, and they just ignore that. If you're, and they say, well, if you're in the church, you're part of the saved community, that means you are saved and you have the Holy Spirit, and your sins are forgiven, but you can lose all that. (laughs) That's a sociological view of regeneration. Continuing, if the church is the family of God, baptism by inducting people into the church makes them children of their Heavenly Father. If the church is the body of Christ, then baptism makes the baptized member of the body a branch of the vine. Okay, and they they all believe in this, Schlissel, Doug Wilson, and they say you have the sap, which means you possess the Holy Spirit, which is a totally heretical view. Because if you have the Holy Spirit, you can only have the Holy Spirit uh, in a saving way due to union with Christ. And if you have union with Christ, you have all the benefits of Christ's mediation, including perseverance and the resurrection unto eternal life. So they completely pervert the doctrine of salvation to hang on to this sociological understanding of baptism. Continuing. If the church is the temple of the Spirit, then baptism makes the baptized member a pillar or stone in the temple and himself a temple and dwelt by the Spirit, capital S. End of quote. So the federal visionists deny the distinction between the visible and invisible church. Consequently, what Paul says about true believers and what they possess in Christ is attributed to all baptized members. Therefore, on the one hand, Federal visionists can argue that they deny ex opere operato, yet on the other hand, they embrace the same outcome from a different perspective. This view forces them to teach a love of God that does not actually save, which is kind of blasphemous. God loves these people, but he doesn't really save them. And I'm talking about the love of election and a salvation, including union with the Christ, regeneration and the forgiveness of sins, that can be lost if covenant faithfulness is not maintained. Such views are radically unbiblical and heretical, and it's the foundation of their denial of sola Christe. It's their denial of solely by Christ. They teach that covenant, you're justified in the final day and the final judgment due to your covenant faithfulness. So they not only pervert the doctrine of election, they not only pervert the doctrine of regeneration, they not only pervert... Uh, the possession of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they have to deny the meaning of salvation itself and make man a co-contributor, uh, a, a co-instrument of salvation, which is a rejection of sola fide, by faith alone. Now, Doug Wilson is—he equivocates more than the others, and he'll say, well, I believe it's only by faith. Uh, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's a snake. Now, he may believe in it, and he may believe in the opposite of it, but that's called irrationalism. It also denies the necessity of the word and true faith for what is signified to be sealed and made effectual. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to take a little break. Um, I know this is pretty hefty stuff. Uh, You might want to go back and listen to it, but this is really important stuff. What is baptism? Why do we do it? What does it mean? Why is it so important? Why is it, and we'll see in a moment, it, it has responsibilities on the baby if you if baptize a baby. It has responsibilities on the parents. They have a, they're have called upon by God to make sure that baby is raised as a strict Christian. That means no public school. That means no letting him hang out with pagans. And then it has a responsibility on the congregation to assist the parents and pray for the parents and pray for the baby to do all those things. But we'll look at that in a moment. Let's take a little break. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this rite, this holy baptism given to us by Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, Cause us to walk faithfully in accordance with our baptism, Lord, and cause us to be faithful in raising children, to be Christians. For that's, if they're not going to be Christians, who wants to have children go to hell? Who wants to raise kids to serve Satan? So help us, Lord, to be obedient unto this ordinance. In Jesus' name, amen.